and welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for preventative mental health, love and compassion. I'm happy you joined us again. I'm Caroline Heim, and today we're going to continue our series, Negotiating Diversity with Insights from Science and Cultural Psychiatry. In this episode, we're going to look at people interactions. Are you a task-orientated person or a people-orientated person? Do you come from a high-context or a low-context country? If you like these podcasts, please subscribe, spread the word, and recommend them to others. And here is Dr. Christian Heim. Hello. And hopefully Christian will interrupt and share some gems along the way, as he did last time. Okay, here we go. Studying people interactions. Understanding and accepting diversity decreases stigma and alienation. We study diverse people interactions as part of behavioral psychology, sociology, anthropology, cultural neuroscience, and political science. This helps us in our aim to progress towards a more peaceful coexistence. Good people interactions and good personal, family and friend relationships are protective to mental health. They help prevent mental illness and aid greatly in recovery. To understand how culture and diversity affect our relationships, we'll consider the theories of Edward T. Hall. From his insights, we can understand culture and what specifically is diverse in diversity. Edward T. Hall. Anthropologist Edward T. Hall, 1914 to 2009, coined the term proxemics, how close we stand to people, and high and low context cultures, how much we need to know the local rules of social interaction to be accepted in a society. Hall worked with the Navajo and Hopi Indians before taking a position in intercultural communication for the State Department of the United States. From 1960 to 1990, He wrote many books encapsulating his findings on cultural differences. The Silent Language, The Hidden Dimension, Beyond Culture, The Dance of Time, Hidden Differences, Studies in International Communication, Hidden Differences, Doing Business with the Japanese, and Understanding Cultural Differences, Germans, French, and Americans. His ideas have helped particularly in international business relationships. They can also be used to improve interpersonal relationships. This is no small point. We humans have to put in the effort to understand cultural differences when money and businesses are at stake. But could we become more familiar with the same information simply to help us to get along as people? Take home message. Getting on with people ideas has been used in business for decades. We can use the same ideas to get on with other people. Among his relevant theories were three key concepts I wish to explore here. He articulated that people have diverse attitudes to one, personal space and proxemics, two, personal time, being task versus people orientated, and three, knowing the right thing to do, high and low context cultures. Attitudes to personal space. We each have a personal space and feel uncomfortable if anyone encroaches on it. We often fail to realise how much this impacts on how we perceive others and how well we get on with others. We'll feel comfortable when someone keeps the same space we do and uncomfortable if they keep more distance or less. This can quickly transfer to become, I don't like them or they don't like me. For this reason, Hall's ideas of personal space, time allocation and knowing the right thing to do, context, become vitally important in how we interact with people and therefore negotiate our diversity. With regards to personal space, Hall articulated four different social zones. Intimate zone, personal zone, social zone, and public zone. 
the intimate zone, very close, is reserved for those very close to us, obviously. When people enter our intimate zone very close in, they can look into our eyes deeply, read our body language in detail and touch us easily. They become the centre of our attention. The personal zone, close, is for family and friends. It is for intense conversation with shared laughter or shared tears. It's the people you really know zone. In this zone, people interact with you and are allowed to touch you, but not intimately. The social zone, a little further away, is for people with whom we connect as part of a group, a teacher talking to you, a boss at a meeting, or someone you meet at a cocktail party. Touching is not normally appropriate, and there is a formality to this zone which varies from culture to culture. The public zone is our safe social distance from which we can react if attacked. This distance, 1.5 metres or more, also keeps away microbes. During coronavirus distancing, this zone is strictly enforced and we're very aware of it. It probably evolved culturally in response to having to keep microbes at bay, and we need to enforce it during pandemics. Because of our public zone, standing inside an elevator feels uncomfortable as strangers need to squish into our personal spaces. Okay, a little bit of an aside here. I often use Hall's proxemic distances in my screen acting teaching to explain different shot types and camera frames. Long shot, medium shot, close medium shot and close up. So actors are really very aware of these different distances. Yes, well, actors are trying to portray what we do in real life. And because of that, they need to be aware not only of how far away they are from each other, but even how far away they are from a prop or something that's part of the set, because it becomes part of the attention, not only for them as social beings playing characters, but also for us, the audience of what we're going to be aware of. So yes, uh, Hall's idea of proxemics has a whole theory about, uh, behind it and is applied in many different areas. So here I'm looking at it specifically to how we interact as people. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. So true. Actual distances of zones vary from people to people, culture to culture, and town to town. Some cultures keep more of a distance, others less. Inner city people allow closer personal spaces out of necessity. People in smaller towns tend to leave more distance because they can. The point is that we may decide someone is nice or not, or that we like them or not, based on our level of comfort with their expression of personal space. If we're uncomfortable because they like standing close, we may conclude that we don't like them. If we're uncomfortable because they keep a distance, we may conclude that they don't like us. We make sweeping judgments on their character and our compatibility based on distance comfort zones between people. This is culturally informed, as we saw last chapter, in response to environmental influences dating back millennia, just as is skin colour. When we understand this, we can conclude that any comfort or discomfort we may feel, it's just a cultural thing, a clash if you like, rather than ill personal intention. Take her message, we may make broad judgments based on cultural distance keeping. So relax, <laughs> that foreign person probably doesn't hate you and you don't hate them, it's just a cultural distance keeping thing, it's just diversity. So, Christian, is this a subconscious thing? Like, are we feeling uncomfortable around someone and we don't know why and it's just because they're standing too close? Oh, that's a very good point. Yes, it's a subconscious thing because we all get used to familiarity and we're most familiar with the way our family does things. Mm -hmm. Or we then get familiar with uh, how friends or our village or our town does things or 
broadly how things are done in our country. So when we're mixing with people of diverse backgrounds, and not just culturally diverse, but uh, other diversity backgrounds, we start to be, feel uncomfortable and we think, oh, is it me? Is it them? And it's just, it could be just where they're standing, how much distance they get. Yeah. And so, so much misunderstanding can come from that. And that's the whole thing. Once we understand things, we can accept other people more. Great. Hall's idea of space extends beyond ourselves to include our possessions and the environment. We can become territorial like animals. That's my chair. They're parked too close to my car. Why are so many people in my park today? As in Sartre's Man in the Park, encroaching people are perceived as a threat to our territory. Territorial tendencies are seen in disputes between neighbours and wars between nations. Space ownership differs out of economic and resource issues. People in the USA, for example, tend to have bigger houses and cars than those in Eastern Europe or Asia. This may at first have been due to economic prosperity and space availability, but it evolved into cultural preference. We're all born into a culture with a particular attitude to personal space. Being forced out of your comfort zone has consequences. The following examples are from people that I've treated. People from rural communities have to adjust to the perceived intrusiveness of city strangers who stand too close. People feel attacked by friendly people from other cultures who enter too close into their personal space. They want a bit of distance. People feel alienated because others keep their distance too much, as if in a continuous COVID-19 crisis. Why are people being so unfriendly when they're not? They're just being their culturally informed selves. Jan and Sean's relationship was adversely affected by moving to a rural culture more respectful of personal space and privacy. Respectful people not only leave more personal space, but also tend to share less information with each other and visit each other less. We'll just let them be. I'm sure they want their space and don't want to be hit with our issues. Visits, when they happen, may be to a cafe rather than a home and tend to be more formal. Some people keep house visitors in one room only and you see very little of their house. Others will gladly give you a tour to include bedroom and bathroom untidiness. It varies across people and cultures. One way is not better than the other. It is simply different. And I'm sure you have your way of doing this too. It's not that they don't like you. It's just a cultural thing that takes us out of our comfort zone. So we decided to visit English relatives in the Aussie way that we were used to, but our Saturday morning surprise was met with a slam door. We were supposed to just know you don't visit people on Saturday mornings when houses get cleaned. This is just a cultural, personal space and you're supposed to know what to do thing. And this varies from country to country and region to region and even town to town. Being aware of this can turn your thoughts from, ouch, that hurt, to, whoops, I guess they do things differently around here. It's not that they don't like you. It's just a cultural thing that took them out of their comfort zone. Okay, so let's just discuss this comfort zone for a bit. So the human brain doesn't like discomfort because it makes it feel vulnerable. Is that right? Exactly. In fact, the whole brain develops by being somewhere that it's comfortable with a family, with a certain set of friends, and it gets to know this is the way things are done here. And of course, we all learn that as we go through life, things are getting done differently in different places, but we don't always appreciate just how deep this can be and how vulnerable we can feel when we feel that, oh, things are a bit different here or Maybe I'm the odd one out. Mm, it's that vulnerability, isn't it? Yeah. 
Aboriginal people throughout the world often feel a particular connection to their land. In Australia, the Aboriginal people often express their rich connection to the vast Australian landscapes and seascapes. Their sense of personal space reaches out into the environment. This feeling of connection with the landscape can affect us all. Many Australians, for example, feel a particular affinity to living close to the sea and beaches. Get me to the surf, sea and salt. More than 85% of Australians live within 50 kilometres of the coast, when the world's average is 35%. It becomes part of the culture. Understanding personal space issues and how they relate to possessions, information and the environment has led me as a doctor to prescribe things like time in familiar childhood landscapes therapy, like time out near a beach or on a lake or sitting under a large tree that reminds me of home, as well as prescribing medication to help treat things like anxiety. Extrapolating Hall's ideas, basic ideas of proxemics, we can include use of eye contact, hand gestures and facial expressions as personal space issues. Making more eye contact is like standing closer to someone. Hand and arm gestures likewise take up more space and are akin to standing closer. Large facial expressions, louder tone of voice and being quicker to laugh out loud also have the same effect as standing close. They engage a person more directly, they demand more attention, and they can be interpreted as being friendly or intrusive. Some people are culturally comfortable with this, others are not. Take home message. Different cultures have different attitudes to personal space. Be aware of your attitude to personal space to appreciate the difference in others. We make positive or negative judgments on how people act depending on our point of view. If someone likes to get in close, are they intrusive or are they friendly? If someone keeps distance, are they aloof or are they politely allowing space and freedom? The culturally informed action is the same, but the judgments are widely different in meaning. Attitudes to personal space can make a big difference to whether we like someone or not. People who are culturally comfortable with distance don't like others encroaching on their space. People who are culturally comfortable being closer don't like others who keep their distance. Understanding this helps us realise it's nothing personal. It's just a cultural space difference thing. Take home message, it's nothing personal, it's just a cultural space thing. Attitudes to personal time. Just as our attitudes to space affect whether we feel comfortable with each other or not, so does our attitude to time particularly our allocation of time towards people or tasks. Hall's theory will explain. Hall articulates two main cultural attitudes to time, monochromatic and polychromatic. But I'll use the terms task-orientated and people-orientated as they more clearly capture what's happening. Monochromatic-cultured people like to do one thing at a time and get it done. They are task-orientated people who prioritise getting things done over attending to interruptions from people. Polychromatic-cultured people tend to have many pots on the boil and readily allow people distractions. They are people-orientated people who prioritise people and even their interruptions over the importance of tasks. Task-orientated people tend to be at meetings on time and expect timeliness from others. People-orientated people may turn up late for meetings and think nothing of it because they were talking to someone else. This varies from person to person and culture to culture. So, what are you? Are you people-orientated or task-orientated or a bit of both? I know I found that realising that I was more of a task-orientated people really helped me understand my motivations and those of other people. So, I guess 
because you can then adjust, especially in relationships, to value others more um, for being a certain way, can't you? Well, that, that gets to the core of this whole book. If yeah. we understand what's going on, it makes it much easier to accept other people because we are interpreting other people all the time. Do they like us? Do they not like mm-hmm. us? And so often our interpretations are not based on reality. They're based on what we think is reality and our Ideas of reality are based on what we're familiar with. Mm. So if we can study what we're not familiar with, so that there are some people that are task-orientated rather than people-orientated, or there are whole cultures that like to stand close rather than far apart. And if we can understand that, then we can see that, you know what? People actually like each other a whole lot more. It's just the diverse differences. True. Okay, so... No value judgment is intended. One way is not better than the other. And it's all, not all or nothing. We all lie on a spectrum of predominantly task-orientated to predominantly people-orientated. And some people can find flexibility in this. Through these cultural differences, however, we humans can get on each other's nerves. <laughs> By being aware of this task-orientated versus people-orientated cultural factor, we can understand and accept it rather than judge it, take it personally, and react against it emotionally. Being out of your comfort zone in task versus people orientation causes stress. Some people in my waiting room get stressed if they just have to wait more than 10 minutes past the allotted time to see me. These are task orientated people. People orientated people in my office can get distressed by the pressure of having to turn up on time week after week. They're comfortable with running a little late. In fact, some people prefer it because it allows them to be a little late and that's more easygoing and less stressful for them. I resolve these situations by talking about the cultural issues at play. This leads to understanding, acceptance and trust without anyone having to feel that they were wrong, right or that they had been slighted. It's just cultural differences. This task-orientated or people-orientated continuum actually has far-reaching consequences which affect our person-to-person interactions. People who are task-orientated often put others on hold, as if on a telephone. Just a minute, I have to get this done, I'll be with you soon. When can we schedule a talk? This is fine for another task-orientated person, as they tend to treat others the same way. To a people-orientated person, however, it may seem as demeaning. And as a consequence, the culture-based misunderstanding leads to hurt. People who are people-orientated are often late for meetings because they see themselves as easygoing and are often sidetracked by talking to others. Sometimes they don't even show up. They expect to be forgiven for these things because they themselves would easily forgive others for this. Oh, sorry I'm late. I got caught up. I just ran into someone. This is fine for people-orientated people who understand, but to a task-orientated person who's been waiting, it is seen as disrespectful and devaluing, and as a consequence, it leads to hurt. Something similar can be seen at restaurants. Some task-orientated people demand fast service so they can get on with the task of eating, whereas people-orientated people feel comfortable with slow service because, well, the point of eating is being with people, right? Take-home message, being task or people-orientated is largely culturally determined. Be aware of this in yourself to appreciate the difference in others. We make positive or negative judgments on how people allocate their time depending on our point of view. People who prioritize getting tasks done, are they unfriendly or are they just focused and efficient? People who prioritize people to the point of accepting distractions, are they friendly or inefficient and distractible? There may be other factors at play but the same culturally informed action can lead to widely differing judgments of someone's character and intentions. 
This attitude to personal time, task versus people orientated, can be generalized to life's values. Task orientated people may tend towards a good life, being one in which a lot is achieved, whereas people orientated people may measure life success in terms of how many friends you end up with. It's a balance. Both are desirable, but all of our time is limited and choices need to be made. Many of our choices are culturally informed. I love this because it actually goes back to values and knowing yourself. One more thing I want to add actually about being a task-oriented people, they love lists. It is so, (laughs) I'm a task-oriented person, I love it. So satisfying to tick off to-do items on a list. Yes. Yes. But it goes back to values, doesn't it? It goes back to values, but when we talk about values, uh, values, uh, like all these different trays that we have, uh, can be personal, but they can also be cultural. Like you can have a whole country valuing getting stuff done. And we know whole countries that have reputations for getting things done. And we have other countries whose culture is more laid back and the place that the task-orientated people go for holidays. And then they kind of say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be like these people? laid back and relaxed, well, it's a value. So it can be individual as well as on a culture level. I love that. So we go to the South Pacific Islands, to Fiji or somewhere to have a nice, relaxed lifestyle. Uh, Yes, you can have a nice, relaxed lifestyle. But let's say some of the problems that are in the EU at the moment, the Mm. European Union, comes from a clash of values. Uh, All of a sudden, if everybody becomes a country, then all of a sudden the Greek people are supposed to do things the way the Germans do them or the French have to have the same kind of values as the Norwegians. Oops, sorry, they're not quite in there yet. I'll I'll try somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's really good. Thank you for that. This world needs task-orientated people who get things done and people-orientated people to get on with people. It'd be nice to do both. But if you try to, you'll find that you can't please everybody and you can't fulfill all the demands on your time. But being task or people-orientated can make a big difference to whether we like someone or not. People who are culturally task-orientated don't like others distracting them from their tasks. People who are culturally people-orientated don't like having to slot into other people's schedules. Understanding this helps us realise that it's just nothing personal. It's a cultural thing. And I am going to butt in here a little bit because here we're talking just about culture at this particular part of the book. But when we start talking about diversity, people's uh, race, religion, gender, sexuality expressions, their abilities, uh, it becomes much more complex. So what we're doing is we're looking at a few things so that we can understand that we can extrapolate from that to accept much more difference from the people around us. Great. Okay. I'm saying that just before we get into the complex one. Okay. Knowing the right thing to do. Our attitudes to space and time, as articulated above, can be readily seen. The cultural context, how much we assume for each other to know the right thing to do in social interactions, what's expected and what's not without explanation, is much more intangible and very tricky. It is worth understanding to understand our interactions as people and in negotiating our diverse differences. In Knowing the Right Thing to Do, Edward T. Hall noted that Eastern cultures are more high context, where to get by you need to know the right thing to do, and Western cultures are more low context, where knowing the right thing to do is less of an issue. But there are many nuanced specifics. Japan tends to be more a high context culture than, say, South Korea, and the UK tends to be a more high context culture than, say, the USA. 
Furthermore, the southern states in the USA tend to be more high context than the northern and rural towns tend to be more high context than bigger cities. There is much variability and there is a certain pride which goes with each. High context, know the right thing to do cultures may see themselves as cultivated, whereas low context, do what you please cultures see themselves as easygoing. That's a positive spin for both. We could find a negative spin. I'll leave that to your imagination. But the point is that one is not better than the other. They're just different. We people and all cultures are on a continuum from high context to low context. In high context, know the right thing to do cultures. The words people use in everyday parlance tend to carry loaded inferences and implications. People tend not to tell each other things as directly. People in these cultures know to look for inferences. You know what he's trying to say. I get the hint. She's giving me the stay away from me signal. Communication tends to be indirect and veiled. This helps decrease confrontation, but it can lead to misunderstandings. These misunderstandings make for great English comedy, by the way. Emotions and intentions tend to be hidden. There can be marked distinction between inner mind states and outward appearances. The fear is embarrassment, doing or saying the wrong thing in front of other people. Low context don't have to know the right thing to do as much cultures, have less social expectation and rely more on the face value meaning of words rather than on inferences. Things are said more directly. Don't beat around the bush. Tell it to me straight. If that's what you wanted, why didn't you say so? Low context cultures may speak more freely about things that may remain private in high context cultures. This makes for much less misunderstanding, but the danger is more affront and open conflict. Emotions tend to be expressed or even worn on the sleeve. The fear is not being accepted for being honest. Building on Hall's ideas, in high context cultures, you're more likely to be expected to just know the right thing to say or not, the right thing to do or not, if you should help with meal preparation or washing up, that it is not your place to express an opinion, the right clothes to wear, that people will talk about you rather than to you, that you won't be told what is expected of you. In low context cultures, you'll be more likely to be told directly if you have poor dress sense, forgiven for getting it wrong, laughed at for getting it wrong, told not to worry about it, have secrets exposed. Yes, but how do you know? People don't talk about this and then they get it wrong and then they're blamed and there's such a big problem. That's absolutely what happens. That is what happens. And so this is why we're talking about this because firstly, we have to understand that high context and low context, so in other words, knowing the right thing to do and not knowing the right thing to do or less assumptions, we've just got to understand that that exists, all right? So that when we end up in these situations, we're then equipped to sort of say, oh, there are some expectations here that I just don't know about. Okay, that makes sense. Any of these can lead to hurt and distress if they're not seen as simply an expression of cultural difference. The potential for misunderstandings is huge. Knowing the right thing to do or not feeds directly into how we experience and handle embarrassment and losing face. People of all cultures, high and low, have the ability to wound others or to help others. In high context cultures, for example, often somebody will kindly take you aside and give you a quick lesson on the expected etiquette. In low context cultures, people may kindly accept you no matter what you do. A country may be more high or low context due to its history or geography. 
Island countries like the UK and Japan may have developed higher context cultures because of less people just passing through them, people that are more in the know for specific behaviours. Cultural diversity like this, however, is likely to result from many complex factors. In high context cultures, people feel included if they are in the know. People not in the know can feel excluded. In low context cultures, more people may feel included, but visitors from high context cultures may feel ill at ease precisely because there are less rules to follow. They fear the embarrassment of doing the wrong thing, even if there is less of a right thing to do. The effects of being a high context person in a low context culture or vice versa can be distressing. As a psychiatrist, I know that many people are wounded by these cultural misunderstandings. Awareness helps. High versus low context culture was almost the undoing of Jan and Sean's marriage. Ivan, from a low context culture, didn't understand the relatively high context protocols of the office and society he was working in. Tracy, from a high context culture, was overwhelmed with thoughts of doing the wrong thing in the new lower context culture she was in. Awareness and making choices based on awareness helped in each case. Due to mobility, intermingling and more complex social interactions, much of the world is becoming more high context. We're inventing more rules as to what to say or what not to say and do and what to do and what not to do and all of that. This is political correctness. We become more careful with each other or avoid conversations altogether. It'd help if we could also incorporate the forgiveness of low-context cultures, forgiving others who do or say the wrong thing. We humans have a tendency to get it wrong with each other very often. The evolving need for more high-context rules for safety, together with the evolving need for more low-context understanding, becomes a tension played out in the public arena. Take-home message. People differ in needing to know the right thing to say and do. Know your own culture in this and know how to handle others in this. Attitudes to knowing the right thing to do can make a big difference in whether we like someone or not. People from high context cultures feel comfortable in knowing the right thing to do and feel uncomfortable when others get it wrong and when they themselves get it embarrassingly wrong. People from low context cultures feel comfortable when there are less social rules and get uncomfortable when others begin imposing rules or trying to embarrass them. Understanding this helps us to realise that it's nothing personal, it's just a cultural difference thing. The problem is that, although it isn't personal, it can feel personal, because being included or excluded in any society, as we explored last chapter, can become a threat to our survival. Take-home message. It's not personal, it's just a cultural, know-the-right-thing-to-do. Hall's theories help us to understand and accept others by seeing that things are cultural rather than personal. If we can begin to understand and accept these cultural differences, then we can begin to understand and accept the growing diversity in our society. Thanks for listening in. Hey, that's one more task I can tick off my list. <laughs> if you like this content, please join our email list and you'll also get a free chapter of Dr. Heim's latest book, The Seven Love Types. You can sign up in the description below this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.